Chapters 6 to 13 of Einhard's Life of Charlemagne. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. This reading by Kara Schallenberg. Einhard's Life of Charlemagne. Chapters 6 to 13. Chapter 6. Lombard War. After bringing this war to an end, and settling matters in Aquitania—his associate in authority had meantime departed this life—he was induced, in 773, by the prayers and entreaties of Hadrian I, 772-795, bishop of the city of Rome, to wage war on the Lombards. His father before him had undertaken this task at the request of Pope Stephen, the second or third, 752 to 757, but under great difficulties, for certain leading Franks, of whom he usually took counsel, had so vehemently opposed his design as to declare openly that they would leave the king and go home. Nevertheless, the war against the Lombard king Astolf had been taken up and very quickly concluded. 754. Now, although Charles seems to have had similar, or rather just the same, grounds for declaring war that his father had, the war itself differed from the preceding one alike in its difficulties and its issue. Pepin, to be sure, after besieging King Astolf a few days in Pavia, had compelled him to give hostages, to restore to the Romans the cities and castles that he had taken, and to make oath that he would not attempt to seize them again, but Charles did not cease, after declaring war, until he had exhausted King Desiderius by a long siege, 773, and forced him to surrender, at discretion, driven his son Adalgus, the last hope of the Lombards, not only from his kingdom, but from all Italy, 774, restored to the Romans all that they had lost, subdued Hradgaus, Duke of Friuli, 776, who was plotting revolution, reduced all Italy to his power, and set his son Pepin as king over it. 781. At this point I should describe Charles's difficult passage over the Alps into Italy, and the hardships that the Franks endured in climbing the trackless mountain ridges, the heaven-aspiring cliffs and ragged peaks, if it were not my purpose in this work to record the manner of his life rather than the incidents of the wars that he waged. Suffice it to say that this war ended with the subjection of Italy, the banishment of King Desiderius for life, the expulsion of his son Adalgis from Italy, and the restoration of the conquests of the Lombard kings to Hadrian, the head of the Roman Church. CHAPTER Seven, SAXON WAR At the conclusion of this struggle, the Saxon war, that seems to have been only laid aside for the time, was taken up again. No war ever undertaken by the Frank nation was carried on with such persistence and bitterness, or cost so much labour, because the Saxons, like almost all the tribes of Germany, were a fierce people, given to the worship of devils and hostile to our religion, and did not consider it dishonourable to transgress and violate all law, human and divine. Then there were peculiar circumstances that tended to cause a breach of peace every day. Except in a few places where large forests or mountain ridges intervened and made the bound certain, the line between ourselves and the Saxons passed almost in its whole extent through an open country, 
so that there was no end to the murders, thefts, and arsons on both sides. In this way the Franks became so embittered that they at last resolved to make reprisals no longer, but to come to open war with the Saxons. 772. Accordingly war was begun against them, and was waged for thirty-three successive years with great fury, more, however, to the disadvantage of the Saxons than of the Franks. It could doubtless have been brought to an end sooner, had it not been for the faithlessness of the Saxons. It is hard to say how often they were conquered, and, humbly submitting to the king, promised to do what was enjoined upon them, without hesitation the required hostages, gave and received the officers sent them from the king. They were sometimes so much weakened and reduced that they promised to renounce the worship of devils and to adopt Christianity, but they were no less ready to violate these terms than prompt to accept them, so that it is impossible to tell which came easier to them to do. Scarcely a year passed from the beginning of the war without such changes on their part. But the king did not suffer his high purpose and steadfastness, firm alike in good and evil fortune, to be wearied by any fickleness on their part, or to be turned from the task that he had undertaken. On the contrary, he never allowed their faithless behaviour to go unpunished, but either took the field against them in person, or sent his counts with an army to wreak vengeance and exact righteous satisfaction. At last, after conquering and subduing all who had offered resistance, he took ten thousand of those that lived on the banks of the Elbe, and settled them, with their wives and children, in many different bodies here and there in Gaul and Germany. 804. The war that had lasted so many years was at length ended by their acceding to the terms offered by the king, which were renunciation of their national religious customs and the worship of devils, acceptance of the sacraments of the Christian faith and religion, and union with the Franks to form one people. Chapter 8. Saxon War Continued Charles himself fought but two pitched battles in this war, although it was long protracted one on Mount Osning, 783, at the place called Detmold, and again on the bank of the river Hase, both in the space of little more than a month. The enemy were so routed and overthrown in these two battles that they never afterwards ventured to take the offensive, or to resist the attacks of the king, unless they were protected by a strong position. A great many of the Frank, as well as of the Saxon nobility, men occupying the highest posts of honour, perished in this war, which only came to an end after the lapse of thirty-two years. 804. So many and grievous were the wars that were declared against the Franks in the meantime, and skilfully conducted by the king, that one may reasonably question whether his fortitude or his good fortune is to be more admired. The Saxon war began two years, 772, before the Italian war, 773, but although it went on without interruption, business elsewhere was not neglected, nor was there any shrinking from other equally arduous contests. The king, who excelled all the princes of his time in wisdom and greatness of soul, did not suffer difficulty to deter him or danger to daunt him from anything that had to be taken up or carried through for he had trained himself to bear and endure whatever came, without yielding in adversity or trusting to the deceitful favours of fortune in prosperity. CHAPTER Nine, SPANISH EXPEDITION 
In the midst of this vigorous and almost uninterrupted struggle with the Saxons, he covered the frontier by garrisons at the proper points, and marched over the Pyrenees into Spain at the head of all the forces that he could muster. All the towns and castles that he attacked surrendered, and up to the time of his homeward march he sustained no loss whatever, but on his return through the Pyrenees he had cause to rue the treachery of the Gascons. That region is well adapted for ambuscades by reason of the thick forests that cover it, and as the army was advancing in the long line of march necessitated by the narrowness of the road, the Gascons, who lay in ambush, 778, on the top of a very high mountain, attacked the rear of the baggage train and the rear guard in charge of it, and hurled them down to the very bottom of the valley, at Ronceval, later celebrated in the Song of Roland. In the struggle that ensued they cut them off to a man, then they plundered the baggage, and dispersed with all speed in every direction under cover of approaching night. The lightness of their armour, and the nature of the battleground, stood the Gascons in good stead on this occasion, whereas the Franks fought at a disadvantage in every respect, because of the weight of their armour, and the unevenness of the ground. Egehard, the king's steward, Anselm, Count Palatine, and Roland, governor of the March of Brittany, with very many others, fell in this engagement. This ill turn could not be avenged for the nonce, because the enemy scattered so widely after carrying out their plan, that not the least clue could be had to their whereabouts. CHAPTER Ten, SUBMISSION OF THE BRETONS AND BENEVENTONS Charles also subdued the Bretons, 786, who live on the sea-coast, in the extreme western part of Gaul. When they refused to obey him, he sent an army against them, and compelled them to give hostages, and to promise to do his bidding. He afterwards entered Italy in person with his army, 787, and passed through Rome to Capua, a city in Campania, where he pitched his camp and threatened the Beneventans with hostilities, unless they should submit themselves to him. Their duke, Arrakis, escaped the danger by sending his two sons, Rumold and Grimold, with a great sum of money to meet the king, begging him to accept them as hostages, and promising for himself and his people compliance with all the king's commands, on the single condition that his personal attendance should not be required. The king took the welfare of the people into account rather than the stubborn disposition of the duke, accepted the proffered hostages, and released him from the obligation to appear before him in consideration of his handsome gift. He retained the younger son only as hostage, and sent the elder back to his father, and returned to Rome, leaving commissioners with Aragus to extract the oath of allegiance, and administer it to the Beneventans. He stayed in Rome several days, in order to pay his devotions at the holy places, and then came back to Gaul. 787 Chapter Eleven, Tassilo and the Bavarian Campaign At this time, on a sudden, the Bavarian war broke out, but came to a speedy end. It was due to the arrogance and folly of Duke Tassilo. His wife, Luitberga, a daughter of King Desiderius, was desirous of avenging her father's banishment through the agency of her husband, and accordingly induced him to make a treaty with the Huns the neighbours of the Bavarians on the east, 
and not only to leave the king's commands unfulfilled, but to challenge him to war. Charles's high spirit could not brook Tassilo's insubordination, for it seemed to him to pass all bounds. Accordingly he straightway summoned his troops from all sides for a campaign against Bavaria, and appeared in person with a great army on the river Lech, which forms the boundary between the Bavarians and the Alemanni. After pitching his camp upon its banks, he determined to put the duke's disposition to the test, by an embassy before entering the province. Tassilo did not think that it was for his own or his people's good to persist, so he surrendered himself to the king, gave the hostages demanded, among them his own son Theodo, and promised by oath not to give ear to any one who should attempt to turn him from his allegiance. So this war, which bade fair to be very grievous, came very quickly to an end. Tassilo, however, was afterward summoned to the king's presence, 788, and not suffered to depart, and the government of the province that he had had in charge was no longer entrusted to a duke, but to counts. CHAPTER Twelve, SLAVIC WAR After these uprisings had been thus quelled, war was declared against the Slavs, who are commonly known among us as Vilci, but properly, that is to say in their own tongue, are called Wellatabians. The Saxons served in this campaign as auxiliaries among the tribes that followed the king's standard at his summons, but their obedience lacked sincerity and devotion. War was declared because the Slavs kept harassing the Abodriti, old allies of the Franks, by continual raids, in spite of all commands to the contrary. A gulf, i.e. the Baltic Sea, of unknown length, was nowhere more than a hundred miles wide, and in many parts narrower, stretches off towards the east from the western ocean. Many tribes have settlements on its shores, the Danes and Swedes, whom we call Northmen, on the northern shore and all the adjacent islands, but the southern shore is inhabited by the Slava and the Aesti, from whom derive the modern name of Estonia, and various other tribes. The Wellatabians, against whom the king now made war, were the chief of these, but in a single campaign, 789, which he conducted in person, he so crushed and subdued them that they did not think it advisable thereafter to refuse obedience to his commands. Chapter Thirteen, War with the Huns The war against the Avars, or Huns, followed, 791, and except the Saxon war was the greatest that he waged. He took it up with more spirit than any of his other wars, and made far greater preparations for it. He conducted one campaign in person in Pannonia, of which the Huns then had possession. He entrusted all subsequent operations to his son, Pepin, and the governors of the provinces, to counts even, and lieutenants. Although they most vigorously prosecuted the war, it only came to a conclusion after seven years' struggle. The utter depopulation of Pannonia, and the site of the Khan's palace, now a desert, where not a trace of human habitation is visible, bear witness how many battles were fought in those years, and how much blood was shed. The entire body of the Hun nobility perished in this contest, and all its glory with it. All the money and treasure that had been years amassing was seized, 
and no war in which the Franks have ever engaged within the memory of man brought them such riches and such booty. Up to that time the Huns had passed for a poor people, but so much gold and silver was found in the Khan's palace, and so much valuable spoil taken in battle, that one may well think that the Franks took justly from the Huns what the Huns had formerly taken unjustly from other nations. Only two of the chief men of the Franks fell in this war, Eric, Duke of Fruili, who was killed in Tarsach, a town on the coast of Liburnia by the treachery of the inhabitants, and Gerald, governor of Bavaria, who met his death in Pannonia, slain, 799, with two men that were accompanying him, by an unknown hand while he was marshalling his forces for battle against the Huns, and riding up and down the line encouraging his men. This war was otherwise almost a bloodless one, so far as the Franks were concerned, and ended most satisfactorily, although by reason of its magnitude it was long protracted. End of section 2 Read by Kara Schallenberg on October 16, 2007, in Oceanside, California.